It's Brian Preston, the money guy. Restoring order to your financial chaos. Retirement, investing, taxes. You've got financial questions, he's got financial answers. It's Brian Preston, the money guy. Well, I came back from vacation this week, and I I guess I was kind of happy that vacation fell in an off week for the money guy show, because then... You know, shows are always kind of a very fluid thing on how we get shows. And this one is not necessarily a financial podcast. And it's not even tied directly to what's in current events right now. Other than I'm going to kind of close the loop in a Seinfeld type way and tell you how this even kind of popped into my mind. But it's a life podcast. It is a life podcast. And I think from a business standpoint, as well as working in a company or anything just to get you motivated... This is going to be a good podcast for you to hang in. So if you're looking just for financial, don't just give up on us yet. Because one of the things, when I go on vacation, I do this weird thing. Instead of, like, my wife goes and downloads as much fiction and, you know, cool books that she loves to read anyway, I'm always the the nerdy kid that, that downloads how I can improve myself type books. And I think I drove because uh, we went down to Mexico with five other couples because there were six couples total. Probably the other husbands hate me because I sat there and gave them facts from the books as I was reading them out loud. I'm sure that was really... No, that's got to be a fun thing a, to be doing on the beach, That's a way to right? get the party started. But um, just for those who haven't don't know where you're at right now, this is The Money Guy Show. You can check us out, money-guy.com. You can write the show. I'm Brian, B-R-I-A-N, at money-guy.com. Or you can contact my co-host over here, Mr. Bo Hansen at Bo B-O at money-guy.com. By day, we are fee-only financial advisors down on the south side of Atlanta with offices in Augusta, south side of Atlanta, as well as up near outside of Nashville, Tennessee. So um, appreciate you joining us today. And what we're going to be talking about today is I read two books while I was on vacation. Well, I read one book fully, and then I read half of the other book, and I'm still working on the second one. The two books were Outliers, and then the, the second one was How to Be Like Walt. You know, as everybody knows, I'm a big Walt Disney fan. I can't imagine anybody going to Hollywood Studios, um, formerly known as MGM Studios, over at Disney World, and not walking into a man in his dream and not getting tingles in the hair standing up on their leg. On I'm their not arms. gonna lie. Last year when we went, I, I think a tear might have fallen out of your eye. I mean, it's just incredible because I, I'm what I'm always thinking about is how one person changed so much. Mm-hmm. I mean, and that, that's always and that's kind of. That's why I think these things, even though they're completely different books, even with completely different messages, they really dovetail well together with kind of some of the life lessons you can take from it. Um, I printed up because as I was listening, you know, going through the whole outliers, I was making notes to myself. And 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 who wrote Outliers, Brian? It it was Malcolm Gladwell. And then if you want to know who wrote um, How to Be Like Walt, Capturing the Disney Magic Every Day of Your Life, that's by Pat Williams. And it's based on about a thousand interviews. Um, kind of compiling them all, putting them in a historic element. And, and they really did work out well, kind of doing those two books at the exact same time. And, and what I thought was interesting, this is where I'm going to kind of bring it into pop culture and bring it full circle. One of the reasons I grabbed Outliers, my personal walk with Outliers is, is I was very familiar with the 10,000-hour rule because my mentor, Cheryl Holland, she talks about it a good bit. Is this on her mandated read list? I think it is, actually. So... She has a, a group of books that she even has a lot of her staff read, and she's been talking about outliers for years. I've heard about it in the industry. But then, you know, there's this brand new, and this is one of those things when, you know, just like when I saw the iPod came out, 
it kind of was a, a change in the marketplace, meaning that I realized when that technology came out, it was going to change how things were done. I think there's a change that's taking place in pop culture to a degree right now with how record labels, as well as, you know, music acts get out there and get discovered. You know, YouTube and social media is really taking hold. Well, there's a group, and they have very salty language, I'll go ahead and tell you. So, you know, don't don't go do the research if you're going to be offended. But And I think I've mentioned, because I liked the word, the song Thrift Shop, because right. I spent a lot of my time in high school and college shopping in thrift shops. So I always was kind of intrigued by that. But Macklemore and, and was it Ryan, Ryan Davis? Ryan Davis. They're these two guys that have come out, and they've kind of hit the, the, the scene. They've been on fire. I can't think of any other way. Well, one of the songs that Macklemore has on his album is called 10,000 Hours. And when I, when I saw that on iTunes, I was like, surely he's not talking about Malcolm Gladwell. And then, sure enough, it is. I mean, you go listen to it. I mean, he's talking about how he can, he's getting close to his 10,000 hours and it's close to making it. And I'm just amazed that there's somebody who has blazed their own trail without a record label. And he's very honest. I mean, it's kind of funny. You listen to his um, his songs. I think his SAT scores, he says his SAT was like 970. Oh, wow. Nice. Um, he talks about how if you sign a record deal, you probably walk away with only about 7% of your earnings. I mean, I learned a lot just from right. listening. Because so, I was always curious, what is a what does an actual mm-hmm. person in the music industry get? Um, so a lot of entertainment, but like I said, very salty language. You know, it sounds like he's had some personal demons in his life. I don't think it's something you have, want to have with the kids around. But just kind of an interesting industry thing, and I'm always looking for things out there in the world that are changing the way we do things in life. And that's what kind of led me to say, well, you know, I keep – might as well I've, – I've read excerpts from Outliers. Let's go ahead and do the whole thing. Okay. And that's exactly what I jumped into. And this is – the book – I've also watched a bunch of interviews and done some additional research because I knew I was going to be doing this podcast today. But what this book – the reason it was so liberating for me was because – and I will tell you, it, it it was confirmed by a lot of the things I've had happen in my life, too, is that it liberated me into illustrating that successful people are just like us. I mean, I think a lot of us think when, when we hear about a super successful person, we're like, they made it off their raw genius. Mm-hmm. I mean, they, they're just so different than everybody else. And, and it is interesting. We work with, you know, executives, Fortune 500 companies. Work with people who make seven, you know, multi seven figures a year, and and every time you meet meet them, you're like you're impressed. I don't want to take anything away from anybody, but you're like, wow, they are just normal people. Just, a, just another person, you, you know. They have they obviously have a very unique skill set that that is very in this day and time. That's kind of bringing it into the outliers because a lot of what outliers talks about is how fortunate you are on based upon when you when you were born or and, and things like that. It plays into that statistical side of things and. And I've often, and that's kind of the other part of what Outliers did for me. It confirmed a lot of some things I kind of was taking on instinctually, and this just confirmed it. Going through two of those, one was all through college, and Bo, you and I have had many, many conversations about this. I never felt like I was the smartest kid in the class. Right. But when I walked into the room and, you know, we started learning, I knew I was probably smarter than at least two-thirds of the class. Right. And that seemed to my, in my brain, I was like, okay, they're not going to flunk the whole class. So two thirds is probably good enough. You I like mean, that, that really that is, that was how I looked at it. And I know that might sound kind of defeative, but I looked at it as this was a liberating thing because then I could focus on, you know, learning as much as possible in the class without having to worry about was I going to be good enough for the class because right. I kind of, 
analyze. And that's exactly what outliers kind of looked at is that they did a lot of research and found, you know, looking at, at stuff that like you take these IQ tests, you, you, know, you know, colleges have these entrance exams and as well as what they look for in your resume, you know, with your SAT scores, your ACT scores. And w- what the research shows is that just your IQ intelligence doesn't necessarily tie into how successful you're going to be. Now, there is an IQ threshold, and, and what Malcolm Gladwell talks about is it's about 120. If your IQ is over 120, you're good enough right. to be successful or to really do some, some tremendous things in the world. But there's not a huge difference between somebody who has 140 IQ versus somebody who has 180 IQ. Um, and, he, and he goes through the book and illustrates that. And that kind of, that was very comforting because right. it showed, you know, I've always recognized, you know, we talked to brilliant people. I mean, I was on the phone with one of our podcast clients this week. Brilliant guy. I get, you know, I always enjoy talking to him. My very first client also that I picked up back when I started my company in 2002, she's brilliant as well. What she does, I could not imagine doing what she does, going and getting FDA approval right, and other things right. like that, the, doing the clinical testing. It's just genius. I mean, and, and I've always got found myself nervous talking to, but I, there's not a thing that you talk about with people. You don't. I get it, right? But right. you know, you you realize these people are smarter than you, but it's okay because you're good enough. And I thought that was very very interesting. The other thing it kind of confirmed for me was IQ intelligence is only one variable. Right. There there's a whole nother element to how you're going to be successful in life, and that's your practical intelligence. And that's the ability to kind of read a situation, your social skills. And, and Malcolm Gladwell goes all into how your life really shapes those type of – those type of that skill set. And, and that also and – Bo, you probably – because I've always given you lots of compliments because you're kind of a natural salesperson. You have a very likable personality when we played on the church softball leagues. I always tell you you're the mayor of fun town because, you know, everybody loves you on the team. And it's not just because you're an athletic guy, but you're a fun guy too. And, and I think that practical intelligence is something that maybe in education you don't always see people praise as, right. uh, enough. And that's one of those things once you get out of school, you realize very quickly it might even be more valuable mm-hmm. than just the IQ because if you're good enough, but you also have that second element, which is the practical intelligence the, the world is your oyster. I mean, you really can accomplish anything. And that's the thing that I thought was very interesting is it talks about, and I used to, when I went through college, you know, I used to call them the front row sitters, you know, and then I was kind of the middle to the back row sitter. Um, but it was one of those things where you want to have a well-rounded skill set. And, and, and I thought it was nice that Malcolm Gladwell kind of confirmed that element of what you, you know, kind of one of those instinctual things that you just assumed you, you always felt like it was true, but it was nice seeing the actual research support it. Um, I, I thought it went into a little bit. There was a study. It was the it was Terman's study of the gifted, and it was genetic studies of genius. And there was a gentleman, and I, and I actually went and pulled data on this. There was um, the genetic studies of genius, and I went and pulled additional information. It was this was done back in 1921, and it was examined the development and characteristics of gifted children into adulthood. Okay. So they did this study from 1921, and it's still going on, by the way, because there's still a few of these people that are still alive, these children from 1921. There's a few of them still living, and, and they, they haven't dropped out, and they haven't died. So this, this study is still going on, but kind of the results have been determined at this point. And what the, the whole setup of this was, Terman hired several assistants 
to, to search public schools all throughout California for gifted children. He had initially hoped to kind of find a thousand children who really stood out from IQ standpoints. I mean, he gave them all these tests and, and trying to figure out the most intelligent children in the state of California at that time. He ended up, instead of having a thousand, ended up being by 1928, he had 1,528 children with 856 of them being males, 672 of them being females, and they all tested genius. Okay. So these kids were all just off the scale genius level. And and they were all born between 1900 and 1925. They all lived in California. Um, just giving you a little detail into the statistics, because I don't think the book went into this. 90% were white, and the majority came from upper or middle class families. And, and it, what was interesting was that Terman, and these kids were known as the termites, as you can imagine, <laughs> because the doctor's name was Terman. So the termites started showing tremendous promise in the beginning. Right. But it was interesting, you know, he, he talked about he, newspapers. You know, back when the kids were in high school, you couldn't open the newspaper on a daily basis without seeing one of his termites doing something incredible. So he thought for sure he had figured out, if you go and find the genius kids, start tracking them, these are the kids that are going to change the world. These are hopefully your Walt Disney's of the future, or, or you know, the Bill Gates and the Beatles, you know, if you're talking about, because these are all people I'm going to get into in a minute. Right. And what he found was it didn't necessarily work out that way. And this kind of ties back to what Malcolm Gladwell was talking about with being good enough. Yes, there is an intelligence threshold that's needed, but you don't have to be a, a, a genius. The higher up the genius scale doesn't necessarily mean the more successful you're going to be. Because he, he said... You know, it kind of concluded that over 50 of the men became college and university faculty members. However, the majority of study participants' lives were more mundane. By the fourth volume, Genetic Studies of Genius, Terman had noted that as adults, his subjects pursued common occupations as humble as those of policemen, seamen, typists, and filing clerks. I know, I, I heard it. I heard it. C-man, I'll, I'll say that. Does that make it better so, you, so the, the third grader doesn't start laughing? Because I think you're assuming that these are going to be, you know, doctors, lawyers, you know, th those type of professions, so, But right? this is the quote that kind of concluded. At any rate, we have seen that intellect and achievement are far from perfectly correlated. And I think that kind of tells it. And that, that was kind of one of those things in the book that just was... Wow, so right. that kid who's sitting on the front row, who probably does have 160 IQ versus, I don't know what my IQ is, you know, but I'm good enough. So it doesn't really necessarily correlate that they're going to be more successful. And than I me. think it's important to distinguish here because I'm sure we do have a lot of very high intelligent, you know, high IQ listeners out there. This is not to say that they cannot also achieve success. It's just to say that they don't necessarily have an upper hand to achieving. You know, success. No, that, that practical intelligence. There's other facets right, to okay. your success. There's other talents that go into it, and that and that's the IQ gets you in the door. But then you have to have the practical intelligence gotcha. to help you kind of navigate through. I mean, I have lots of friends that are engineers for public companies, um, you know, big industrial companies, and they'll tell you politics. You get into too big of an organization, politics comes into play. Right, right. And how do you navigate politics? Social, Social skills, skills and, and right. practical intelligence. Um, so there was, I thought it was interesting. He mentions, I don't want to go into too much detail, but you can Google it and figure it out. There's a brick and blanket test. You, you know, what that is, is most of your IQ tests are convergence tests where they figure out your IQ level, but there's 
The brick and blanket test is a divergence test, which measures your creativity. And it was very interesting to kind of hear how people who are super book smart sometimes give you just the what's con- I consider low-lying fruit. And then you have somebody who you ask them, and they might still be smart, but they're just more creative. And their answers are just obscure, right. but they're but they're very creative, and you know, and, and one of the things I shared with you, Bo, and I, you know, you probably thought I was bizarre, and I know all the husbands on my vacation thought I was bizarre. I asked them, "What's the use for it? Why are, why are manhole covers round?" Okay, you know, and that was that was one of the interview questions that Microsoft used to ask, and that, and I kind of thought about it for a second. I came up with an answer. I'm not going to share the answers because I think it's fun. If you want to go Google why are manhole covers round. Um, if you don't know the answer, as Malcolm Gladwell shares with you, you couldn't have gotten a job in Microsoft when that <laughs> fir- first started. But there are a few acceptable answers. Right. I was glad to see the answer I came up with was number one on the list of um, most acceptable answers. I think mine was number two. Yours right? was number two. I was I was impressed. So um, you you pat. I guess you would have continued we on both in the be process. Microsoft employees, right? Um, so, but that was very interesting. Um, Kind of looking at the coming, bringing it back to the whole Macklemore thing was the 10,000 hour rules. Cause when you talk about outliers, probably the most popular concept that's come out of it is that 10,000 hours rule. And what the whole thing is, is that when he was writing the book and a lot of research has gone into it. Now I will tell you, when you do some research on the internet, you find people don't always agree with this, but I still, even the people who criticize it, I think nobody can doubt that practice in a, any type of pro- skill or profession, obviously makes you more proficient at it. And, and that's kind of what the 10,000 hours is a threshold to where you have to have 10,000 hours to reach mastery of some type of skill. And we talk about it all the time. I mean, we, we've had probably two or three phone calls in the last week, two weeks, with people who were thinking about getting into the profession. They were asking, how do you do this? And one of the things I shared with them, I said, be careful, because a lot of people get into financial planning and investment work there's a lot of shops that are set up to turn you into a salesman and to go out there and immediately start harvesting assets and trying to manage people's money. And I always say, be very careful with that because I'll tell you, you would not have wanted Brian Preston managing your money fresh out of college. It right. really did take me several years understanding how emotions play into things, understanding the analytics, and as well as just being a good, prudent decision maker with how you deal with clients plus set goals and, and make it all bring all that into to, to one working skill set. And that's one of the things that I think the 10,000 hours, because if you just did simple math, assume you work 1,800 to 2,000 hours a year of truly working in your profession, not doing the other parts of support services, right. it might take you between five to seven years to build that that mastery of your skill set. And Bo, you, you know, you've been in the industry now over five years, and I'm starting to see, I mean, your wings are starting to open up and you kind of, you know, and, and I'm seeing that. The, the right. proof is in watching you progress through that. And I started thinking about where I was in, in, when I came into this profession. It really was about six, probably six, six and a half years that I felt like I didn't know everything. But I was pretty proficient that there weren't, I wasn't worried about too many phone calls coming in that I couldn't at least point somebody in the right direction give them an answer or at least know where to go look for the answer. Right. And I think that's the – and it, he goes back and he talks about sports. He talks about violinists. He talks about people who play the piano and what separates the people who are just good versus those that are, are just industry leaders. And and what you find is is it really is how much practice you put into something. Another thing I think about the whole 10,000-hour rule is you don't get to 10,000 hours 
I mean, I guess you do with a job, but when you're talking about athletics, musical instruments, as well as just a skill set, maybe you like math and you get to be really good at math by realizing you have a passion for it right. and kind of attacking that passion and having such a hunger to learn that you don't put it down. I mean, and, and that's kind of what happened. I can tell you when I picked up that book, The Wealthy Barber, back in the mid 90s, it rocked my world to a degree. I just wanted to read every personal finance book I could get my hands on at that point because I, I just had a, a, a thirst, a hunger for as much knowledge as I could put in this head as possible. And that's what I think that's where the 10,000 hours kind of kicks into. Right. You have to have a passion, and that passion is what drives you to want to be as successful as possible. Um, you know, and, and that kind of leads to talking about each one of these case studies that Malcolm Gladwell puts in. One of the first ones, I, you know, he talks about is obviously the Beatles. Beatles, mm-hmm. I mean, one of the, the probably the most successful band in history. Right. If you think about it now, I'm a little bit older, so maybe I'm a little, you know, I was I was too too young to be a you know around when the Beatles first hit the scene. Right. But I mean, I still even in college, I think their box set was released or whatever their greatest hits or you know, and this is in the 80s, 90s. Right. And that was a big deal. Mm-hmm. I mean, and, and you know, and, and I think it's funny, you know, the whole Apple has been such a popular computer, popular brand. You know, with the the iPads and but you know, for years they fought with the Beatles over the logo. Right. You know, a lot of people you know talk about. It, so it's kind of interesting how everything's inter- interconnected. But he talks about Malcolm Gladwell goes into the Beatles and he talks about how they they really honed their ten thousand hours in Hamburg, Ger- Germany. And what that was is remember they're from Liverpool, and um, just to give you a little introduction into this German city, what it was back in the nineteen sixties, it had been. Um, one of Germany's main seaports, but of course we had World War II mm-hmm. back in the in the, you know in the forties. But in nineteen forty four, virtually the entire city had been reduced to rubble by World War II bombing raids. So by nineteen sixty, um, when the Beatles arrived, Hamburg was was had grown from the ruins of World War II and had been established has established its reputation throughout Europe as a city of vice and criminal activity. And basically, what it was from from the descriptions I've read. There's a bunch of bars, right? Bunch of strip joints, right? Bunch of prostitutes running around, and then there was this this kind of promoter for the the clubs. That, that well, all of them started doing it, but this you know inventive cr- promoter decided, you know what we need to make people excited about drinking more alcohol and coming to see the girls and everything else. We need to put bands in here. We'll just have bands playing. All the time, twenty four hours. We'll just get bands, you know, cranking out music. That will make it an exciting atmosphere, and it'll attract more people. And we'll sell more alcohol, and we'll, you know, have more people coming to see the ladies. So, so it's not like Hamburg, Germany, was the place that you want to send your young kids to go learn to be great musicians. And, And there is some when this isn't in outliers, but when I started doing some additional research for today's show, it was kind of interesting to see the story of all the original Beatles. And what they had, to, the kind of the, the way the manager of the Beatles convinced the parents to let these 17- and 18-year-old kids go to Germany. Right. I mean, I'm not so sure my parents – and this is the 60s, too, by the way. So it's not like this is, you know, modern day where I feel like things roll a little easier than they did back then. But somehow they were able to convince their parents to, to let them go to Germany to start playing – <laughs> in a bar. Right. And um and the way they described it, I thought it was interesting. 
Um, here's John Lennon said this. We had to play for hours and hours on end. Every song lasted 20 minutes and had 20 solos in it. That's what improved the playing. There was nobody to copy from. We played what we liked best, and the Germans liked it as long as it was loud. The Beatles had been used to simply... Wait a minute. The Beatles had been used to simply standing still when they performed in Liverpool. But the promoter would come to the front of the stage and loudly shout, Make a show for the customers. So Harrison explained that that prompted Lennon to dance around like a gorilla, and we'd all knock our heads together. And, you know, you probably watch, you know, performances... And that probably was what separated the Beatles, besides their music ability and the songwriting, was that they did have a little more action on the stage. It said that this, the Beatles steadily improved during their time in Hamburg, and that was noticed by other musicians who were there at the same time. But McCartney recalled, we got better and better, and the other groups started coming to watch us. The accolade of accolades was when Sheridan, who came in from the top ten, the big club where we aspired to go, or when Roy Storm or Ringo Starr because Ringo Starr was not in the Beatles right. back then. He was in the Hurricanes, which was another band that played back in, in Hamburg, Germany during this exact same time. So it's kind of funny to see how that all came together. What I'd say was always the one, um, what I'd say, that's the song, was always the one that really got them. The song was often played by the group, once being played for 90 minutes nonstop with group members walking off stage to wash and drink before returning. So um, Sutcliffe, who was one of the guys that came with him, he didn't end up being one of the final Beatle members. Um, we have improved a thousandfold since our arrival. And um, Alan Williams, who is here at the moment, tells us there is no group in Liverpool that can touch us. So they did. I mean, playing hours on hours, right. probably eight hours at a time, every night for seven nights a week. You probably, probably get pretty good at your craft. You did. I mean, it was it was pretty incredible. I did think, and this is completely not part of Outliers, but I thought this was interesting when I was redoing the history. Um, Best was the original drummer that they had taken from Liverpool. He was when they they filmed their first demo. Best was in town buying drumsticks, and they needed somebody to film the drums, and that's when Ringo Starr from the Hurricanes drummer stepped in and recorded with Lennon, McCartney, and Harrison. Um, they recorded three songs, Fever, September Song, and Summertime. That was the Beatles. I mean, wow. it's kind of funny that the guy went to the store to get him some drumsticks and basically all worked out. wrote himself out of um, the band to a degree. Um, I, I think we can move on from the Beatles. I had a little bit more research I'd pulled, but I want to move on because I know we're moving through time. Bill Gates was very interesting to me because, you know, Bill Gates is one of those people, he went to Harvard to, to get a law degree, but then he dropped, you know, we all know the story, he dropped out very quickly mm-hmm. and then started Microsoft um, with Paul Allen. And, and one of the things I think is so interesting, and this was amazing, is that Bill Gates, at 21, probably did know more about computers than, I'd say, 95 to 98% of the people in the world. And the reason a 21-year-old had so much knowledge is he did have a stroke of luck that Malcolm Gladwell really draws attention to. And this is where Malcolm Gladwell says there are things in your environment that give you opportunities. So you can't just say it's raw genius. There also is a little bit of luck of being put in situations. There's some environment. And environment things that impact you. And and what it was is he went to school. I think it was public school in Seattle for for years. But then his family is is pretty wealthy. Um, They transferred him in middle school to the school of Lakeside. 
It's Seattle's most elite private school. I've looked it up. Their current tuition is about $28,000 a year, so it's not exactly a poor place, um, you know, easy school to get into. And like I said, it is the most elite school in Seattle. But this is what Bill Gates said about his school. Now, this is actually from Bill Gates. It said, Rigor absolutely defined my Lakeside experience. Lakeside had the kind of teachers who would come to me even when I was getting straight A's and say, when are you going to start applying yourself? <laughs> teachers like Ann one day, said, she said, Bill, you're just coasting. Here are my 10 favorite books. Read these. Here's my college thesis. You should read this. She challenged me to do more. I never would have come to enjoy literature as much as I do if she hadn't pushed me. He also went on to say, um, that Lakeside was great because the education was relevant to his life. Right. And then this is the part that really Malcolm Gladwell kind of grabs hold of, um, and, and I just decided I'd go a little deeper giving you some some knowledge when I did the research. Relevance was also a big part of my Lakeside education. The most common image of a bad education is a sullen kid, slumped in a desk saying, when am I ever going to use this? The teachers here did everything to make their lessons matter. Years before other schools recognized the importance of computers, the Lakeside Mothers Club came up with the money to buy a teletype that connected over the phone lines with a GE timesharing computer. Now, Malcolm Gladwell goes a little deeper, you know, and it doesn't show in this quote that Bill Gates is giving. Colleges didn't even have these teletype computers because it was... Back then, computers were done where you basically used a punch card to write your program. You gave it to somebody who fed it into the computer because you could only do one at a time. You know, it was a new thing was these teletypes that were essentially terminal computers that allowed multiple people to be inputting programs in at the same time. And that revolutionized. This is 1968, by the way. So this is a long ways away from computers filled up rooms back then. This was not like what you've got sitting in front of you right now, Bo. I mean, computers were huge. So uh, for a seventh grader in 1968 to have access to a teletype computer is crazy because it was also super expensive. And that's where he goes on. He said the schools could have shut down the terminal or they could have tightly regulated who got to use it. Because remember, this was very expensive at the time. Instead, they opened it up. Instead of teaching us about computers in the conventional sense, Lakeside just unleashed us. Lakeside introduced me me to computers. They allowed me to teach a class in computers. They hired me to write a scheduling program. It didn't have to work that way. They could have hired an outside computer expert to do the scheduling system. Teachers could have insisted that they teach classes on computing simply because they were the teachers and we were the students. So, I mean, the book goes even deeper because he went on and, I mean, it got to the point where when... They did, you know, they couldn't provide as much access to this teletype machine. That Bill Gates was waking up at three in the morning, sneaking out of his parents' house. He lived close enough to the University of Washington that he was able to sneak into their computer terminal at the college campus and program from three in the morning till six six in the morning before school, before right. high school. And his parents, you know, now after he was famous, I'm sure his parents commented that during high school he always what they had a hard time, hard time waking him up in the morning. It's because the kid was sneaking out at three in the morning to go program. I mean, so he was definitely as part of the ten thousand hour rule. He was he was, putting, he was putting his time in. So he probably didn't know more about computers at twenty one than most people did. So I thought that was just a very interesting thing that that was kind of put together. Another person that it talks about had a very similar story was Bill Joy. Bill Joy, of course, is the founder of Sun Microsystems. In the computer world, he's kind of known as a genius. Um, It's one of those things when he was going for his doctorate, 
he wrote a, a math equation that just rocked the, the, the panel of professors who were watching him. I mean, he's just on, quick on his feet, genius level here. But, and he, you know, he's written all kind of code that's still used. I think it's kind of the backbone for the internet as well as a lot of the things that, um, Macintosh type systems use in the, in the computer world. Really incredible guy. And he was the same way. He went to, you know, grew up. He was planning on being a biologist, science, loved science. But then they had opened, University of Michigan had opened a brand new computer lab. Um, you were only supposed to have limited time on the computer lab. But Bill Joy recognized that when you typed in how long you were going to be on the, instead of putting a, a, a numerical number like one or two hours, you could just put like K or T, an alphabet number, and right. it would trick the system into where you could be on there unlimited. And he did. He programmed for hours on hours, and that's where he honed in his 10,000 hours. And the other thing that Malcolm Gladwell talks about is how lucky, lucky we are in the year that we're born. Because he talks about Steve Jobs, Bill Gates, and then Bill Joy from Sun Microsystems. They're all born within a 10-year cycle. There's really about a five-year window in the 50s that if you were born in that period, you were just young enough that you probably could take advantage. If you had the skill set in the, in the 10,000-hour training, you could capitalize to, to really take advantage of the, the, the era you were in. If you were five years older, it probably wouldn't have worked because you'd have been working for IBM. You'd have been set in your career. You'd have been kind of stuck with kids and you know housing and obligations. You probably couldn't have made it happen. You're a little bit older, you'd have missed the element altogether. All it even goes back, the timing of when you get in, have opportunities, is even goes back to the robber barons. When you talk about Carnegie, when you talk about Vanderbilt, when you talk about Rockefeller, the guys who shaped America. Y'all remember me talking about the History Channel when they had the guy, the the men, men who men. made America. It it is amazing how that you have of the seventy five richest people in the world, like all through history, going all the way back to Cleopatra and everything else. It was like eight or nine of them that were right there during that period of time, and it's because America was changing with the railroads, with you know, change. The whole world was just a, a change, especially here in America. And these guys, because of when they were born in that ten year period, they were able to capitalize. Um, and I've often found that you know, Bo, we've joked about this. This is one of those observations. I've told you that if, thank God I was born in this modern era because if I was, I have a friend. The guy can fix anything. I mean, I've told you if the world, if the zombies ever did show up, if there was ever a zombie apocalypse or something like that, I've got a buddy I'm going to his house <laughs> because he can fix anything. He's handy. He can shoot he, stuff. He can shoot stuff. I mean, he probably knows how to make fire easily. He knows how to kill stuff to, you know, to get food. He knows how to get water sources. He, you know, he builds stuff in his backyard. Who has zip lines in their backyard for their kids? Not me, because I'd be worried about the insurance risk. But, you know, they have everything. Meanwhile, I'm worthless. I mean, I grew <laughs> up. My father was handy. My brother and my father used to restore old cars. I, I don't know how to even change my oil. I mean, I, that's I, I just don't have much skill set. If I was born back in the 1800s, I'd have been the kid on the end of town who was blind because I'm very nearsighted. Fortunately, through LASIK, I have good sight now. Um, I can't grow facial hair, so I couldn't have had a cool beard to impress anybody. I mean, I'd had really spotty, you know, and I'd have been skinny. I was a skinny kid, you know, growing up. I would have been the kid, and greet, by the way, if I don't shower every day, my hair gets really greasy. I mean, that's probably way too much information. But this is the way I, so back in the 1800s, I'd have been the outcast. Right. But somehow being born when I was born, I'm good at math and numbers. It's worked out well for you. It's worth it's worth a lot of money. So, I mean, think about that if you ever think about your own life. And it is amazing how 
the time you're born, the era you're born changes things. Mm-hmm. Because my buddy David, he might have been the mayor of, you know, killing it back in the right. 1800s. He'd have been the guy, you know, who was, who was building everything in the town. So it had been very successful. It's just so, so interesting. You know, it's the same thing about athletic mm-hmm. prowess. You know, think about if you – different sports have different heydays. You know, if you were an outstanding basketball player, it's probably much more profitable now than it was 30 years ago yeah, to be a, a basketball player. We were watching an interview yesterday. Um, the guy, lead singer from um, Maroon 5. Yeah, Adam. Adam uh, I don't know if it's Levine or Levine, but it's uh, Adam. You know, the guy who's on The Voice. And he, they were talking about – they were doing an interview, and he was talking about if you were as popular as Maroon 5 was – 15, 20 years ago, back when everybody used to buy CDs and albums, they would have probably, he'd probably be worth like $80 million. But because of social media and now how fragmented the music industry is, I just told you a guy is making millions of dollars without a record label. Right. Now people, you know, artists just don't make as much. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the industry is so much more fragmented. It would have been much better to be a rock star back during, the you know, and 90s, uh, yeah. Def Leppard. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> it would have been much better. Poison, Motley Crue, and those guys compared to being somebody like Maroon 5 right. is right now. So it's just so interesting how timing plays into it. Now, I kind of want to close this out because I've covered up the... Yeah, we're good, getting along here. Here's where I separated from this book a little bit because well, I watched... What was the conclusion? What, what is that, 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 what that's what say? The book... He concludes the book saying that, you know, through the process, he realized environment impacted more than individual exceptionalism. Because he said the whole book was looking to dispel the myth of individual exceptionalism. I don't completely agree with that. Essentially the self-made man. He was saying there's no such thing as a self-made man. Exactly. And and that's the thing. I, I agree with the whole thing about timing and how you have to be born in the right era. You also have to have a little bit of luck of having certain things presented to you that you can exploit with your talent. But here's here's where I differ. Uh, I'm a little different. Bill Gates, mm-hmm. he had this talent where he'd been programming for years upon years. Um, by the time he was 21, he didn't have to go start Microsoft. I mean, there was something. It was that perfect recipe of having the talent, the luck of being in the right place at the right time, but then having that raw ambition to believe in yourself, to go try to grab that brass ring as it came around. And that's the part that I think really every one of those people I talked about, if you talk about the the Vanderbilts, the Rockefellers, the Carnegies, it's the same thing. They were in in a very fertile ground where, you know, if you were willing to take the risk and do these things, you could have more success than you could ever imagine changing industry as well as an entire country. But, man, did you have to risk a lot of stuff. I mean, Cornelius Vanderbilt had already made it before he decided to make his big switch. And it's the same thing, you know, and I'm going to switch it back over to the whole Disney concept. Disney is so funny looking at his story because it's the same thing. People who had made it, but they risk it all again Mm -hmm. just to see if they can go challenge themselves. And I'm running into that. I have a friend who is um, here in the state of Georgia, is probably one of the most influential people. You'll never know his name because he's behind the scenes. But I, I've been to, you know, a few years ago, he invited me to the Masters with him. By the way, there, there's your first clue. He's somebody because you don't get Masters tickets easily. Anybody who lives in Georgia can tell you that. You know, and it, it's one of those things where me and him were having a conversation. He's hit, hitting a point in his, his career where money's not the thing anymore. And it, But he still, he even said the quote, I feel like I could do more. I feel like I can do more. I, I want to know what the next step is for me. And I can't help but think, 
That's exactly what these outliers feel like. It's not about the money. It's not just about the success. It's to see the challenge of how much can I do. And, and it's just amazing to watch these people use the raw ambition. You know, and taking Disney for an example, I was amazed when I was reading the book, optimism, passion, integrity, curiosity for life, and then raw ambition really sums up a lot of these people. I mean, raw ambition, believing in yourself more than anybody else, because there could be a lot of people that tell you no throughout your life, but you just kind of push, push, push. And, you know, and that's the whole thing about fulfillment. I've told you guys, and this is where I go a little bit outside of um, outliers as well, because I've used this on the Money Guy podcast many, many times. What I've learned from my career, man, helping successful people become even more successful is that when I talk to an entrepreneur, somebody who's made it, it's not necessarily the money. I can I told you about my friend whose father was just a seven dollar an hour welder, got laid off, started his own metal fabrication business. And when I remember the first time I talked to him about his success, he gazed off, you know, kind of got that glazed over look in his eye. And what he was doing is he was taking himself back in time to when things were lean and it was hard. And he took that road that was less traveled, that narrow gate that Bo and I are always talking about, and then came out on the good side of it. That leads to fulfillment. And it, it, sure, there's environment, there is, you know, being at the right place at the right time, but there's also that raw ambition of doing it and going that road less traveled. And when you come out the other side and you've made it, in spite of everybody telling you, you can't do this, you shouldn't do this, are you, are you crazy? You got a good job. Why would you do this? And then you do it and you make it, you feel fulfilled. And I tell people, this is why follow your passion. We deal with people all the time make money in the most obscure ways. But what is always the, the driving factor is they have tremendous passion for what they do. And, and that passion is rewarded. The money kind of shows up. I mean, it really does. It's kind of a, a, a funny thing. Um, I don't want to go on too long, but you know, one of the things I've often found, this show, I mean, this podcast, we started doing this podcast in 2006. I told you all I did it because I was feeling guilty. We had minimum assets I felt like I was sending people out to the wolves to get advice. So I said, you know what? I love my iPod. This is going to change the industry. I had just been fortunate enough. Here's my lucky situation. Um, my buddy at the time, one of my buddies, he's still my buddy, but I don't know, you know, and I, don't, I think it's okay if I share this. He was Clark Howard's CPA. And Clark Howard is a, a, a you know, consumer finance guru here in Atlanta. Um, he's TV shows, um, radio shows. Well, he, my buddy was his CPA, and he knew I was a big fan. He said, hey, I'm going to go watch Clark record his radio show. Do you want to just ride with me and, and watch? It'll be fun. I know you're a big fan. You'll enjoy it. I went and watched that show, and it kind of rocked my world, too, because I was you know, taking into account we have this brand-new technology with the iPods. I love talk radio. I got to watch Clark Howard in person do it. I even got to submit an article. I see there was a caller that called in with an article, and I happened to have just a few things that I keep in a file folder you know, from going to meetings because I took a – and I pulled that Jonathan Clements article out and handed it to Clark, and he used it on the air. And I remember thinking, wow, I could, I can, I know a lot of these answers that Clark is doing. So that's kind of how the podcast started. And then we just did it and did it and did it for years. And it was probably four years into it that I had, um, a, 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 per, a listener contact me, said, Hey, Brian, can you meet me at the airport? I'd like to meet you because I'm considering to see, wanted to see if you'd consider managing my money. And I, I remember driving to the airport, meeting her, and, and it was a great meeting, and she's still a client. And, and little does she know, I, I think I told her she was my first client at the time. I don't know. I might have been faking it until I make it at the time. But 
Now, 90% of our business comes from the podcast, and we have clients in 23 states. It is amazing if you just dream and believe what you can accomplish. And I remember when I started doing this podcast, my wife, and I found this out a few years later, she had gone to all my friends and said, please don't make fun of Brian for doing this podcast. I know it sounds really crazy that he's doing this. It's out there. It's weird. But don't make fun of him. And I, and I look back on that. That is the stuff that just makes you go, wow. Um, you know, Bo, you and I have been brainstorming. I've been, you know, I've, I, just like my friend told me he wants to do more. I want to do more. And, you know, one of the things I've been talking about, I've been feeling guilty looking at the industry. And I feel like we have these, our minimums keep going up. You know, we were at, when I started the company, it was at 75000 Now we're at 750000 Probably won't be too long. We'll be a million dollars for a relationship. But there's so many people I feel like aren't getting a good diversified portfolio. And the technology is making where it gets easier and easier. Now, there are there are products that I've seen. And don't worry, this is not a sales job, guys. I'm just trying to tell you something that we've been brainstorming because you guys are brilliant out there in the listening audience. You might be able to help make this 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 vision into something that's actually tangible. You know, if you go look at E-Trade, if you go look at TD Ameritrade, they do have areas where you can go fill out a risk profile and they'll give you a, a portfolio of ETFs or mutual funds. And But they usually focus on cash, stocks, and bonds. Bo and I have been brainstorming, what if there was a way to create something that, that actually did asset allocation the way we think it should be done, um, that w- went a lot further with the asset allocation. Now, I don't want to – my clients who are you know wealth management clients and investment – I'm not talking about replacing what we do because there still is an economies of scales. Once you have 750 to a $1 million, you can do things on the institutional side that you can't do as a retail person. It, so the, the market is going to still make it where our, we're not pricing ourselves or taking our, our jobs away. But I feel like there is a, a void out there in the marketplace – for, for really good asset allocation for the people who don't have a million dollars, for the people who have 25, for the people who have 50,000, you know, the people who are starting out. And I just wanted to put it out there. If anybody, if there's, we're thinking about doing, creating like a survey monkey or, or something to get some feedback. If any of this strikes you as creating a movement, like we're talking about creating a web portal. With this, we haven't even figured out how you do this from a, a back office standpoint. But if this strikes you, you're like, man, I would, I'm looking for something like that that would help me navigate through this process, very cost effective, but handle a lot of the decisions that I just don't know what to do while I'm waiting to build up enough assets to where I could work with a professional money manager. If you don't mind, shoot us a quick email. I'm not looking for, you know, all, all I'd want from you, just, you know, shoot me an email with your age. And how much you would consider putting in. We're not going to chase you or try to sell you or anything. We're just trying to gather data to see if this is something. We feel uh, that there's a void in the marketplace. And what we're doing is this is kind of our trial run to see if you guys agree. Yes, there is a void of exactly what you guys are talking about. And I'll, I'll fall into that void. I'd be interested in seeing if this is something that would make sense for me, my family, my goals, my situation. Because I'm the, I mean, I'm the the serial entrepreneur. I'm always trying to see when the, there's something in the market that's got a hole in it. And I've been wrong in the past. This Money Guy show has been great, but a lot of my ventures have worked out with my wealth management company. But of course, I did a coaching website with my mentor, and it, it wasn't a, it didn't lose out. But I found out the market wasn't there. So that's why instead of jumping headfirst in like I did with that, I wanted to actually kind of start talking to our listeners, start a dialogue about the process, see if there is something because 
I've got some connections that I might be able to work out the technology. I've got somebody who we could work and I'd be willing to put my own resources in the design. I just don't know if the market's there. But um, guys, I hope outliers and you can tell this is all driven by me reading these two books over vacation because that's what go take vacation. I mean, that's one of the best things I can tell people, you know, if, if you can do a vacation every so often to at least clean your mind out, get away from the day to day fires that you're putting out so you can really focus on what your vision is, because vision is so important to figure out what you want to do over the next three years, the next five years. And try to make those dreams become a reality. And that's exactly what happened on this vacation. I had a great time with my wife, got a lot of sun, but man, did I come back kind of inspired, feeling like we could do even more. And I just want to challenge you to do the same thing. Hope that didn't sound because that really was not an infomercial. It was just us trying to brainstorm out something because you guys, we consider your family. You're part of the Money Guy family. And we're just trying to take it to the next level. Um, check us out, money-guy.com. I'll talk to you. This show went a lot longer. I left out a lot of stuff that I had planned to talk about, but that's just the way it works with The Money Guy Show, and we'll be back in two weeks to continue this dialogue. Talk to you soon. The Money Guy podcast is hosted by Brian Preston, and Brian Preston is a partner with Preston and Cleveland Wealth Management. Preston and Cleveland Wealth Management is a registered investment advisory firm regulated by the Securities and Exchange Commission in accordance and compliance with securities laws and regulations. Preston and Cleveland Wealth Management does not render or offer to render personalized investment or tax advice through the Money Guy podcast. The information provided is for informational purposes only and does not constitute financial, tax, investment, or legal advice.